fucking morning, baby boy. How's it going? Oh man, I hope you guys at some point get to have a day that's even half as fun as I had yesterday. Because I'm still riding a high from how much fun I had at work yesterday. So, for a couple of hours at work, we had some Christmas activities that we did. We did a Secret Santa gift exchange, and we had a nice lunch, and the highlight of the whole thing was a gingerbread competition. There's like 35, 36 of us, I think, at the warehouse, and we were split into two teams. And by the way, I had determined way before, I'm like, whoever picks me is going to win this. There's no doubt. (laughs) I was actually quite surprised with how into it the guys got. It was so cute. It was so cute. Everybody was just really getting into it. We were like running around, grabbing things from the, the tech shelves, little tools and stuff that we could glue onto our houses to make look cool. We actually used silicone for a lot of our stuff. <laughs> it smelled so bad. So freaking bad. I've never, I guess, smelled silicone before because I've never had to use it before. Like for what purpose would I need to use silicone, right? And, uh, We were using it to glue, well, I was using it to glue bits and pieces onto our house and stuff. And, um, actually, I think, I think one of the other boys grabbed it from my hands. Either way, who cares? We all worked on this house. And, of course, we won. And it was, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, so much fun. And everybody had a little, each per, each side had a story. I mean, we didn't have a, a story that was personal to a technician, like the other team did, which was really funny. But, uh, you know, we had a little reason for what we did. We had little drop cable and stuff extending from the home because I don't know if you know, but I work for a communications company. So that's internet, cable, telephone, that whole ordeal. Oh, let's take a sip of coffee before I continue. Mm. You know, it was crazy. Yesterday... I didn't have milk, so I couldn't even have coffee at home, and it was so depressing. So depressing. I was like, how will I live today? How am I even going to make it out the door if I don't have any freaking fuel in me? Well, I had some Earl Grey tea with no milk, and it was just fine. I made it to work, and I had a coffee at work. (laughs) So that was kind of awesome. The thing that I recognized yesterday is the best way to bond with people and to have fun is really to do activities together, have healthy competition. These guys are so cute. You know, it makes a huge difference in your day if you really like the people that you work with. Um, I mean, that's a pretty duh thing, but... I think it's been a while since I've been in a place where I really, really enjoy pretty much everybody. I was telling my work hubs yesterday, my warehouse partner, I was saying, you know, I don't think there's anybody here. Whoops. Whoa, that's an alarm. I should probably turn these off. Hold on. Pause. But I'm not going to pause. I'm just going to keep talking through, turning off the alarms. There you go. It makes a huge difference in your work day 
when you like everybody. And as I was saying, I was telling my work husband, I said, you know what? I don't think there is anybody here who's on my shit list. Like there isn't anybody I dislike or have a serious problem with where it would, where every time I saw them, I would just be like, ugh, not one. Every time I see any of the guys, they're all so nice. They, we say good morning. <clears throat> a lot of them, I impose myself on them with a hug. Because <laughs> I love hugs and I'm small and it's the best when big dudes give me a hug. Because I'm just like, <laughs> you're so cute. Have a good day. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Like one of the first times I ran up, I'm one of the guys. He was just like standing there and I just went, ah! And I just gave him a big hug. <laughs> he was like, what the fuck? Oh my God, just laughing, having a great time, you know? And like sometimes the guys will leave, the afternoon guys, and I'll just be like, oh, bye guys, have a good day and go and give him a hug, you know? Just, they're just a bunch of fucking sweeties. Sweetest, sweetest people I know. And fuck, are they ever fun? They're so much fun. They got so into the gingerbread house thing. I had such a great time doing that. Like, they're great. I don't even know what else to say. But I was talking about work and how it makes such a huge difference in your day to be around people who you like working with. And the other thing that really helps, I think just in general, not just with people you work with, but with people you know, is do activities together. You got to do activities together. I've started recognizing this and I think I've just been broke ass for so fucking long that I wasn't able to do it. But like going out with your friends and having a nice meal or having a having breakfast, you know what I mean? Like Brian and I went out a couple of weekends ago to this new place. We discovered a new place together. He searched it. We went. We waited. We had a great time. And uh, the food was delicious. We had such an experience. You know what I mean? And oh my God, we shared dessert. It was just so cute. And like normally we would go for a walk after because we would, we had gone for breakfast once with our friend Natalie. And the, what they used to do, what her and Brian do is they have breakfast and then they'll go for a walk, which is amazing. It's so nice. You know, you walk it off, you feel better, you're not heavy and full, and you get to like walk and chat and just relax. It's awesome. I recommend it to you. Go hang out with your friends and go for a walk, have a breakfast, say hi, do this, do that, just do stuff, make something together. You know what I mean? That shit is so cute. You don't have to spend lots of money to have fun either. You know, it's really all just a mindset and an attitude. You can have fun doing anything, but if you tell yourself it's not fun or or whatever, then you're not going to enjoy it as much. And if you want to do activities, really find people who you genuinely enjoy doing those things with because it makes a whack load of a difference when you're doing things with people you really like. Like generally work is could be really boring. You know what I mean? It's just great having that kind of relationship with people where everybody's just nice and lighthearted and cracking jokes. And even if you do get annoyed, you could just say whatever and people are like, they don't take it personal. It's a great work environment. I think it's probably my favorite work environment that I've ever worked in. And um, I, I feel so lucky 
working with those guys. They are so fun. I can't help it. I'm still riding a high wave from yesterday because there was just so much good energy being passed around. You know, the gift exchange was really fun. Everybody was just, it was cute. It's so cute. I'm especially a big sucker for when boys do arts and crafts kind of stuff. I was like, <laughs> I was talking to the boys. I'm like, oh my God, it was so cute. You guys got so into it. He's like, that's male competition just happening. And I'm like, yeah, that is very, very true. But that can get pretty cunty and it did not. So there we go. Activities and stuff. Do them with your friends. And uh, I mean, I'm kind of shit sometimes. Sometimes I don't want to do anything. You know what I mean? For like the past five years, I've been trying to tell myself, I don't want to see anybody on Christmas. I just want to spend the day on my fucking own in my house to relax. Just leave me alone, please. But you know, you want to hang with some people. People want to see you. And it's like, why not? Why not? Just hang out for a bit. Just relax. Just don't have to be all day. Which is important because I really, really do need a day to just decompress and chill out and not entertain or have anybody in my space or just relax because you know I'm very all people on and on all the time and uh it's not a complaint I'm just saying that I need to chill out what else is happening the time crunches does it not it is the 12th of December already how is your Christmas shopping guys How's your Christmas shopping going? Hmm? You good? I'm just waiting for a couple things in the mail. A little bit nervous because I haven't heard anything about those things yet, but I suppose all I can do really is wait. Oh, one second. Okay, I will grab in a couple of hours. Is that okay? in an hour okay so oh my god here i am freaking out i ordered a couple things and it looks like i had just messaged my landlord this morning to check if they had been received and i'm like have has anything come in the mail she's like yep two packets i'm like oh yes thank the lord thank the lord i have been waiting i have been waiting oh <sighs> that's a big relief but i still have probably a couple more things because I just ordered them recently which by the way isn't it amazing that you can order online I know I've talked about this but it's just amazing the convenience is so nice not having to go somewhere and shop around and spend the time thank goodness for the internet now let's move on before I go on and on about the marvels of technology which we all understand however don't forget to appreciate these things I hate that attitude of Oh my god, okay, we get it. It's the internet. No, it's fucking cool. You didn't make it, you asswipe, but you use it every day. It improves your fucking life. How can you even have that attitude towards something that is so helpful and has so much utility? That's such a cunty fucking attitude, and I don't like it. I don't, okay? I hope that's clear, dickhead. (laughs) 
I was going to say, what was I going to say? Oh, I've been catching up on a lot of Bill Burr lately because I got this or I didn't get this. I saw this tweet. I got to I got to find it for you so that I can tell you about it. Ah, the hateful bullshit men like Bill Burr spew on their podcasts matters. He's stoking misogynistic trolls and abusive men who already harass us to keep doing it. Ugh. He may have no idea how his words can actually harm women more vulnerable than me, but they really do. What a coward. I have no idea to what she is referring because I've been listening to the Monday morning podcast and the Thursday morning after Monday morning podcast um, for the last few days. I haven't found anything in particular that I... Oh, Bill Burr, misogynistic. Dude, he's married to a black woman. He has a daughter. He's not misogynistic. These women are fucking nuts. And I wish I didn't just chalk it up to nuts, but this is so ridiculous. What, bitch? Are you jealous because he's funnier, like funny as fuck and gets so much attention? Bill Burr holds down his podcast. Huge inspiration to me, by the way. On his freaking own. He's so funny. The way he talks about sports, I could listen to him talk about anything, and I'm not a huge sports fan. He talks about football, he'll talk about baseball, he'll talk about basketball a little bit, and it's so entertaining. It's not like I don't understand the terms, I get the games. <clears throat> I'm just not particularly interested in watching sports, you know what I mean? It's like, meh. I don't want to. If I was going to do anything sports related, I would rather just play the sport than watch people do it. It could be interesting sometimes, and I get that. But uh, yeah, I'm good on that. Thank you. <laughs> I'd rather read a book or something. <clears throat> read a fucking book or something. Um, this shit. I don't, I don't really know where it comes from or what kind of place you have to be in internally to listen to someone like Bill Burr, who talks about his relationship with his daughter, by the way, and it is so sweet, so cute. <laughs> he was telling a story about how she fucks with him, like he'll try to put her little sweatpants on and she'll like straighten her leg or like bend it and just laugh at him, and then he's like... I was getting tired of it, so I just made a pouty face at her. And she goes, mm, I don't like it when you said that. That is so cute. And this lady's like, you're a fucking misogynist. Look, I understand also that there are cumulative effects to verbal abuse. And it does register in your brain at the same place that physical pain does. Yes, this is true. But we also have this thing called a frontal lobe, a prefrontal cortex, which, which can help you determine whether you're actually being physically harmed or not, or whether the words are actually as hurtful as you are absorbing them. A lot of the time, you, like it's just insecurity that people have in themselves that causes them to interpret shit this way. Yes, there's experience and all this stuff. It's a joke that Bilber made in his new special where some guy, the guy kind of yelled out an answer to a question that he had. And he said, 
uh, that whatever I just said, the way that you heard it is not the fuck the way I said it. It went into your brain and got cut up with your childhood and all your dumb shit. And then that's what you responded with. I think that's a lot of this. You know what I mean? As It's really difficult to sit here and not get frustrated. But at the same time, it's easy to understand how people react this way. There's obviously some experience or whatever. But the bigger, bigger, bigger question is how do we correct right? How do we correct for discrepancies like that individually? These people need therapy. If you're listening to someone like Bill Burr, who, by the way, is a comedian, a comedian, his life is making jokes. He's just naturally hilarious. That's just the way he is. But that's the job. That's his bread and butter. So I don't understand how people I just I don't get it. Um, especially publicly to come out and say something like that. I don't know who this Jenna Friedman chick is. Let me just Google her, shall I? Let's Google Jenna Friedman. Who the F are you, Jenna? Hmm? What the F is your effing problem? Let's see. Jenna Friedman, Jenna Friedman, J-N-A-F-R-I-D-M-A-N. Look at that. She's right there. Oh, you know what I recently found out, by the way? Remember I told you a while ago, or there was a, a few days where I was talking about Jessica Yaniv? I can't remember the guy's name. Jonathan something or other. The, the trans, supposedly trans woman who was suing a bunch of people because they wouldn't wax her balls, (laughs) remember? She used to work at my company. He, it, that thing is gross. Used to work at my company, which is crazy. Let's see. Jenna Friedman is an American stand-up comedian. Oh, writer and filmmaker. She has been a field producer at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and has written for Late Show with David Letterman. Ew. And you're calling him a misogynist? Good goodness. Come on, woman. What is this? You're a comedian and you're sitting over here and you're talking shit about Bill Burr? God, that's upsetting. Probably just someone who isn't funny and who has to blame somebody else and take some shit out on blah, blah, blah. He used to work on The Daily Show. Ugh, she doesn't look like a pleasant person to hang out with either. She just has that look on her face. That, I kind of want to punch you in the fucking mouth, you fucking bitch. But, you know, (laughs) whatever, I guess. I just don't, I don't get it. I don't know why comedians would go after comedians. Isn't that the most messed up shit either? That's gotta be a, you're doing better than me, therefore I need to tear you down kind of thing. You know? That's a sad thing to want to do to somebody. It's just tear them down. Why? You are not a happy person if you want to do that to somebody, okay? You're just not. It just makes no sense to want to fuck with people like that unless you're fucked. Jesus, fix your fucking life, ho. Fix your fucking life. 
going after Bill Burr. And like I said, he's a huge inspiration to me. I listen to him and I really enjoy him. And it's such a, it's a whole different thing to be able to entertain or do a podcast or record all by yourself. You know, it's a very personal space and it's difficult to get comfortable in. And he's super comfortable now. Like he's so good at it. And he just, thoughts just come out and they're always funny. He's a funny guy. He just has a way of talking and a way of carrying himself that's funny too. And uh, yeah. So, you know, Bill Burr, I'm for it. Jenna Friedman, I'm not. It's a very disappointing tweet to read, and that's not the first of its kind. There's so many like that. Oh, Bill Burr's a misogynist. Oh, Joe Rogan's a misogynist. Oh, this comedian's a misogynist. Oh, blah, 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 blah. I mean, look at the Louis C.K. shit, right? Like, people don't understand, or for some reason, this is what happens here. It's like, women, either you want to be infantilized or you want to be treated like an adult. You can't have it both ways. Now, if some dude pulls his dick out in front of you and starts jerking off and tells you about it ahead of time, guess what? You now have a choice, my friend. You can leave or stay. But if you stay, don't complain. What you about what you just had to witness, which is a guy coming on his stomach, all right? For frick's sake, it's just getting a little ridiculous out here. You don't want to be a part of something? Say no. It is not on anybody else to read your freaking mind and know where you're at. It's not that hard, man. It's really not that difficult. And you decide what you put up with, you draw lines, and you are the one who sets boundaries. And if you are incapable of doing that, you are a child, and you have to grow up. There are things that are important to understand about the world. One of those things is that you have choices, and if you make a bad one, that's on you, baby doll. Okay, it is on you. If a guy says something that offends you, maybe take a minute to think about it, okay? Don't hang around that type of guy. Why would you? It's no point. Don't do it! Get out of there! Get out of there! Look at me, trying to be Bill Burr now. <laughs> what a loser. <laughs> Oh, I can't help it. Like sometimes the way that people say things, I just want to say it like them because it's so funny. And I know I don't sound like them. And I know I'm not as funny, but it's still fun. It's still fun to pretend. It's still fun to role play sometimes. And guess what? I'm going to do it. You don't like it. You don't listen. Choices, my friends. We have them. Use them and quit blaming the world for your stupid shit. Okay? Okay. Glad we had this talk. So anyways, shall we continue on to an article this morning? Let me move this here. Hold on a second. What do I got? Oh, did I download that thing I wanted to download? I have a video. I don't know where it went. Oh, right to my downloads. I have a video. 
And that video is from the Gingerbread House contest. And uh, I'm going to put it in the beginning of the YouTube version of this, but I'm probably going to have to chop it out for the audio just because it is a three and a half minute video. And you do actually have to see it because each side tells the <laughs> tells what's happening with their... Maybe I can put that as a separate video. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Okay, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I wanted to use that. And it's just you get to see how much effort has been put into these <laughs> houses by us and the technicians. They're so cute. You'll see why having cable and stuff just extend. Ah, it's just so fucking awesome. But anyways, I was going to read, so I do digress. Thank you. One moment. Let's see what I picked here. Are you more than your body? Free will. I think I'm going to save that for a later date. It's been a while since I've talked about free will, but obviously my stance has not changed on the matter because... It's a very, very, very challenging thing to talk about because I think people misunderstand what you're saying a lot, but it's a fun one. It's one of my favorite things, and I think I'm going to think about it some more, maybe see if I can refine some of those thoughts. Uh, You know, the dark side of political ambition. All right, let's see. I will actually read that one. Why not? Pardon me for that. Thank you for your understanding. Appreciate ya. Let's do this. The Dark Side of Political Ambition Machiavellian personalities may enjoy political campaigning more than others. I mean, that seems to make sense. But let's read on. In personality psychology, Machiavellianism refers to a cynical and manipulative approach to interpersonal relationship that embraces moral flexibility for personal gain. Mm-hmm. People high in Machiavellian, Machiavellian traits, or mocks, <laughs> that's so funny, it's one of my friend's last names, place a high priority on money, power, and competition and are said to pursue their goals at the expense of, or at least without regard for, the welfare of others. Machiavellianism has also been identified as a member of the dark triad, a group of socially aversive, self-centered traits that also includes narcissism, a grandiose sense of one's own superiority to others, and feelings of entitlement to special treatment, and psychopathy, callous disregard for the rights of others combined with reckless impulsivity. Hmm. Gosh. If I had a dollar for every time I experienced that fucking bullshit from some asshole... Although all three members of the dark triad, 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 share a common core of interpersonal antagonism, there has been debate about to what degree they are distinct from each other. In particular, there have been concerns that existing measures of Machiavellianism essentially tap the same traits as psychopathy, and therefore may be redundant. However, A recent study suggests that mocks are notable for their political ambition, whereas psychopaths do not care much for politics. Hence, there may be a meaningful and theoretically relevant distinction between Machiavellianism and psychopathy after all. Although the concepts of Machiavellianism and psychopathy share common elements, such as willingness to use manipulation and deceit to achieve achieve one's goals, 
Psychopathy is also associated with impulsivity, whereas in theory, Mach should be more planful and oriented to long-term rather than short-term goals. Additionally, it has been suggested that unlike psychopathy, Machiavellianism is associated with less violent, less overtly aggressive forms of misconduct such as cheating, lying, and betrayal, especially when retaliation is unlikely or impossible. For example, mocks are more likely to cheat on term papers than multi-choice tests, hence their cheating tends to be strategic rather than recklessly impulsive. On the other hand, some research suggests that contrary to theoretical expectations, current measures of Machiavellianism are associated with impulsivity and excitement-seeking. Additionally, although all members of the dark triad, 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 I don't know, are associated with low agreeableness, a personality trait reflecting concern for the well-being of others, in theory, Machiavellianism, unlike psychopathy, should theoretically be associated with high conscientiousness, a trait associated with impulse control and long-term planning. However, a review of studies found that both psychopathy and Machiavellianism are associated with low conscientiousness instead. What a shock suggesting that both mocks and psychopaths are likely to be poor at long-term planning and thinking before they act. To be fair, though, <laughs> the same review found that psychopathy had significant positive associations with conduct problems including antisocial behavior, substance abuse, and gambling, whereas Machiavellianism did not. This is somewhat in line with the view that mocks are more likely than psychopaths to be selective and strategic in their behavior rather than taking impulsive risks in general. Despite this, the authors argue that current research using existing measures of Machiavellianism is really measuring psychopathy, and that better measures of Machiavellianism that capture the ability to engage in long-term planning while also tapping the selfish, manipulative nature of the concept are therefore needed. Despite the apparent shortcomings of existing measures, there is evidence that shows interesting differences between mocks and psychopaths that are relevant to the theoretical core of Machiavellianism. A study on the dark triad and political ambition found that there were differences between each of the three dark traits in how they were related to specific interests in specific activities relating to working in politics. Specifically, they found that both narcissism and Machiavellianism were related to interest in running for office and feeling qualified to be in power, whereas psychopathy was not. Furthermore, Machiavellianism alone was related to having a positive view of specific activities related to activities involved in running for elected office, including fundraising, working with party officials, interacting with the press, and taking the time needed to run for office. Narcissism was unrelated to interest in any of these activities, whereas psychopathy was related to an active dislike of all of these activities. This indicated that although narcissists liked the idea of running for office, they had little interest in doing the actual work involved. Mox, on the other hand, seemed to think that they would enjoy the day-to-day -day business of campaigning for office, whereas psychopaths found the idea unappealing. Oh, this is interesting. I'm just going to have a quick sip of coffee, my friends. How you doing over there? Are you holding up okay? It's um, interesting how there's overlay in these concepts, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, narcissism. 
but they're still separate things because there's something that makes them a little bit different, but it is a little bit different. All right. Hence, this seems to suggest that mocks and psychopaths... Oh, wait. Did I read that already? No, I did. Sorry about that. Hence, this seems to suggest that mocks and psychopaths differ sharply in their attitudes to behaviors required to gain political power. The authors suggest that psychopaths might lack a desire to interact with others, whereas mocks might actually enjoy the process of interacting with people for the purpose of influencing them politically. This would also be consistent to some extent with mocks being more interested in long-term planning and having a desire to gain power than psychopaths. Considering that the word Machiavellianism is named after the political philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli, this finding seems particularly fitting. A limitation of the political ambition study was that it only used self-report measures and did not assess any objective outcomes, so it is not clear if mocks objectively do better in politics than psychopaths or narcissists. However, another study in Germany using objective measures of career success found that Machiavellianism was positively associated with obtaining a leadership position in a company, whereas psychopathy had a negative association. That is, mocks were more likely to obtain positions of responsibility at work than psychopaths, which would suggest that despite the similarities between them, there are at least some theoretically expected differences between outcomes associated with Machiavellianism and psychopathy, even when using currently existing measures. This seems to suggest that despite their apparent impulsivity and low conscientiousness, mocks are willing and able to take a hands-on approach to achieving their ambitions, whereas psychopaths do not seem to care, perhaps because they do not have driving ambitions or do not enjoy doing the dirty work of politics. Additionally, Previous research suggests that mocks thrive in unstructured organizations in which they have latitude for improvisation and are subject to fewer rules and restrictions, and in which they have opportunities for face-to-face -face interaction, perhaps so they can practice manipulating people. In this respect, it may actually be fitting that measures of Machiavellianism are associated with low conscientiousness. I can't imagine that conscientiousness is high, amongst a psychopath or a Machiavellian-type personality, just because if you were, there would be some sort of, I would imagine, feeling produced that would make you not want to do that because it could cause you problems, right, in your relationships to, to behave in ways that are impulsive and manipulative, especially to people you claim to care about or whatever family or whatever it may be. Um, but obviously these people don't seem to really care about the interpersonal relationships too much unless it furthers them in their career, especially with the Machiavellianism. But anyways, people who are high in conscientiousness tend to be orderly, like following rules, and may appreciate highly structured working arrangements. On the other hand, mocks may perform poorly in overstructured working environments so that they're Low conscientiousness, oh, so their low conscientiousness may go hand in hand with their preference for flexibility and improvisation. Perhaps mocks enjoy political campaigning because it allows them to be flexible and affords opportunities for improvisation. Did I read that twice? No. Oh, okay, there we go. For, I didn't. For these reasons, it seems that Machiavellianism may still have a distinctive place in the dark triad and may be important in understanding the nature of political ambition. So cool. 
so freaky reading about personalities trips me out because i'm always like ooh i remember experiencing this quality and this quality um this quality ooh i don't like it all right ready for the next one here we go being recognized and remembered the sense of self self esteem and self-cohesion. Okay, so before I continue, I saw the word cohesion, and I remembered this term that Jonathan Haidt used in the happiness hypothesis called multi-level cohesion or cross-level cohesion. So he talks about different dimensions in a personality, and then he talks about he's obviously the end goal is like how do we attain happiness how can you keep doing that and the idea is to ensure that all of those levels of your personality of your person are integrated and cohesive and and work together because generally a lot of a lot of your cognition is at odds you know like you have one feeling you have an opposing feeling you have a a bit of a war on the inside about those feelings and it can be very difficult to reconcile two parts of the person you are that are disagreeing. We are all hypocritical and we all contradict ourselves in many ways. And uh, that can actually be quite disconcerting, especially if the discrepancies get really large between those two aspects of your person. So Anyways, I just want to bring that up. That's something that definitely helps if you can kind of reconcile your shit, even if that means generally if you're just accepting reality, you, you just understand that there's going to be parts that are not cohesive. And I think that actually helps bring about cohesion. Amazing, isn't it? You wouldn't think so, but there you go. All right. How are we to understand human needs for recognition and being remembered? The wish to be important, to make an impact, to gain notoriety, to be thought of, talked about, idealized, and adored. Is it innate to human beings as the result of an evolutionary process necessary as part of the parent-infant attachment for survival? Geologic time. There is one important issue we need to consider as we launch this discussion. It involves a mixture of cognitive and emotional factors. This is the notion of geologic time. Geologic time is a system of chronologic dating that relates geologic strata to time. It is used by geologists, paleontologists, and other Earth scientists to describe the timing and relationships of events that have occurred during the Earth's history. Humans seem to have cognitive and emotional difficulty appreciating geologic time. The huge number of years of the Earth's existence as studied by geologists and paleontologists. The Sun is about 4.6 billion years old. Our solar system is about 4.57 billion years old. The Earth, about 4.543 billion years old. In 100 to 200 years from now, how many people will be readily remembered from the 21st century? How about 500 years from now? Maybe 10 to 20, perhaps more, by historians and specialists in various fields. How about 10,000 years from now? 100,000 years. Paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould noted that over 99% of all species known on Earth are now extinct. So whom are we kidding when we speak of legacy, being remembered, and the like? This reality and the vagaries of life can overwhelm us, leading to magical thinking, cognitive disorders, or disavowal. 
The sense of non-existence is not a comfortable feeling, as Donald Winnicott so eloquently described. Might the intensity and prevalence of the need to be remembered and recognized benefit from further explorations into early development and effect theory? I don't know about you, but I'm not too worried about whether I'm remembered or whatever. I think the people who are important to me will remember me. And if not, that's cool. I'm not too crazy or worried about going down in history and making some crazy impact on the world or whatever, you know. I can only do so much, my friends. We can only do so much. And there's 8 billion of us and, you know, not everybody can be fucking pinnacle apex human being, you know. Those people are around, but they're few and far between. All right, examples. Some common ideas in everyday lives can address these issues. Fear of death, non-existence, being forgotten, oneself and self-esteem. These issues and questions pervade our art, history, fiction, non-fiction, politics, and more. One example comes from John Adams, the second president of the United States. He noted the passion for distinction in men and women. Women. Whether they be old or young, rich or poor, high or low, wise or foolish, ignorant or learned, every individual is seen to be strongly actuated by a desire to be seen, heard, talked of, approved, and respected. I definitely have to agree by a desire to be seen, heard, I don't know about talked of, uh, approved definitely by somebody, right? You want to have somebody that approves of you. I don't need the world to approve of me, but... <laughs> I certainly need friends to kind of back me up and have my back. So in that sense, yes. Like, I think maybe for myself, it's, it's a, I need to have a little, I need to be recognized by somebody, but not just anybody. You know, I don't really care to be recognized by the world at large, but I do need to have people in my world that recognize me and, and that kind of stuff. So any validation or any of that stuff that I really need, um, I, I want that from my friends. I don't want that from strangers, although, you know, it's kind of weird to say, Jesus, because I am on the internet and I like to talk out loud and uh, do all that. I'm sure to some degree that I'm in denial of there's something that I'm seeking here that I'm not telling myself I do. It's just because I don't feel like that's why I want to do it, but... You know, that that's what I believe about what I'm doing. But I could be wrong. It's very possible. I'm open to it. I screwed up. Where was I? Oh, here it is. He elaborated. I am often astonished at the boldness with which persons make their pretensions. A man must be his own trumpeter. He must write or dictate paragraphs of praise in the newspapers. He must dress, have a retinue, and equipage. He must ostentatiously publish to the world his own writings with his name. He must get his picture drawn, his statue made, and must hire all the artists in his turn to set about works to spread his name, make the mob stare and gape, and perpetuate his fame. Journalist Heidi Stevens presented a poignant episode between mother and child that expands the discussion about being recognized and remembered. I watched a toddler sitting near me catch his mom's eye across the pool. She was in a mom and baby swim session a few lanes down from my son, maybe with the toddler's younger sibling, and the toddler watched them intently, waiting for his mom to look through the foggy glass and notice him. 
When she did, he went wild. Mama, he yelled and waved. Mama, hi, Mama. She couldn't hear him, but she smiled and waved. He waved some more and yelled Mama some more. I cried. Of course I cried. I cried typing this. You watch a toddler utterly filled with joy as the simple sight of his mom's wave and keep a dry eye. Oh, you watch a toddler utterly filled with joy as the simple sight of his mom's wave and keep a dry eye. Okay. The self. Virtually all psychological theories of motivation and behavior make an effort to grapple with the problem of the self. The concept of self has a long and complicated history with a large literature. A comprehensive review is beyond our scope, but some trends should be noted. The focus here is on in-depth psychological studies, with neurobiological studies being summarized elsewhere. There are a variety of well-known psychoanalytic efforts to deal with the self in its development. Freud's models, Winnicott's true and false self, Erickson's eight stages, motivational systems such as Lichtenberg proposed, Daniel Stern's developmental model, emergent, core, subjective, narrative self, Guido and Goldberg's hierarchical model of development, Guido and others are examples. Virginia Demos suggested that self-organization is primarily based on two issues, coherence slash organization and being an active agent. Goldberg highlighted the need to distinguish between the brain, mind, and self. One is a vital organ composed of neurons, synapses, and computer-like activity. One covers the vast area of meaning and offers us an entry into interpretive science, which stands apart from empirical science. And one is the seat of agency, which defines our individuality. It is necessary that the three are never reduced to the one or the other, despite the lure of reductionism. Mm, I don't agree with that, but I'm going to continue. Heinz Kovat's work increased the focus on the self and self-pathology. Kovat defined the self as the independent center of initiative. Kohut, along with developmentalists, systematically considered the effects of others on the self. Galitzer, Levy, and Kohler expanded this integration in their book, The Essential Other, highlighting the internal-external integration throughout life. These studies increasingly seem to make explicit not only the differences between the intrinsic aspects of the self and the extrinsic influences on development, but also the integration of the two. Greenspan's notion of floor time suggests providing psychological functions and assistance for the child, eliciting the child's self rather than imposing. Winnicott also highlights this issue with his ideas about impingement, true and false self, and the like. These ideas on self-development focus on the integration between extrinsic and intrinsic perspectives, between the value of validation and attunement from the extrinsic world, and the value of competence and initiative as achieved internally. As Winnicott noted, the theory behind this is that suitable environmental provision facilitates the internal motivational processes. Let me read that for you again. The theory behind this is that suitable environmental provision facilitates the internal motivational process. The need for support and environmental provision, be it psychological oxygen, oh, be it psychological oxygen, recognition, interest, whatever, also appears to be important throughout development. 
Individuals may have different needs at different points in life due to life's challenges and or their own goals and capacities. What do you mean may have different needs? Individuals will definitely have different needs at different points in life due to life's challenges and or their own goals and capacities and all the things that just change in you as you age and experience things and learn. Come on. (laughs) Effect theory. We turn now to Tonkin's and current effect theory. Recall that for Tonkin's, the primary motivators are the innate effects, interest, enjoyment, surprise, distress, anger, fear, shame, disgust, and dismell. These effects are conveyed via the face, vocalizations, and movements. Affects represent a stimulus response system, and they are triggered by stimulus increase, stimulus level, and stimulus decrease. These effects can be readily seen in infancy. With age and further development of the cerebral cortex, the effects remain, but humans can alter the expressions. Let me just quickly give you a definition of what the cerebral cortex does, because I myself forgot. The cerebral cortex my friends, is the thin layer of the brain that covers the outer portion of the cerebrum. It is covered by the meninges and often referred to as gray matter, so it's the outside. The cortex is gray because nerves in this area lack the insulation that makes most other parts of the brain appear to be white. Tell me the function. Tell me the function. Tell me the function. Let's see. Let's go here and just go. The cerebral cortex, the cerebral cortex, (laughs) is the largest site of neural integration in the central nervous system. It plays a key role in attention, perception, awareness, thought, memory, language, and consciousness. Damn, I'm really appreciating my cerebral cortex right now. (laughs) All right, let me continue. These effects can be readily seen in infancy. With age and further development of the cerebral cortex, the effects remain, but humans can alter the expressions. The face and eyes are important. The notion of the gleam in the eye and being seen. As Darwin noted, the gleam in the eye is not just a metaphor. With joy often comes secretion and sometimes tears from the lacrimal glands. In addition, infants appear programmed to focus most on the eyes and the mouth. This makes sense given that the eyes and mouth have most of the small muscles in the face, enhancing communication of effect. Infants can initiate and terminate interpersonal contact through their eyes. As Adam Phillips notes about Winnicott's ideas, not to be seen by the mother, at least at the moment of the spontaneous gesture, is not to exist. Tompkins emphasizes the importance of the eyes in intimate relationships as well as in development. Absolutely. I'm always about eye contact. If I'm talking to you or if you're talking to me and we're face to face, I'm looking at you. I'm engaged. I'm listening to you. My attention is focused on you. And that is what eye contact indicates. It always trips me out when people can't do that. People are like, oh, it's so freaky. You do, you, you, your eye contact is, I'm like, no, 
What's freaky is your bitch ass cannot maintain eye contact with me, which really makes me question what the fuck is going on in your head. You're not paying attention to me. You're not listening to me. You're distracted by something else. It's just, no. Okay. Oh, I mean, if you're not even looking at me when I'm talking, do I really even exist? (laughs) The significance of the eyes shows up in art as well. Bob Dylan described the profound impact when he as a youth made eye contact with Buddy Holly at one of Buddy's concerts. Dylan's song, The Levy's Gonna Break, also conveys the power of the eyes. While I look in your eyes, I see nobody other than me. I look in your eyes, I see nobody other than me. I see all that I am and all that I hope to be. Tompkins conceived of script theory to account for the role of effect in the development of the self and character structure. In script theory, I define the scene as the basic element in life as it is lived. It includes at least one effect and at least one object of that effect. Connecting one effect-laden scene with another effect-laden scene involves the formation of scripts. The script deals with the individual's rules for predicting, interpreting, responding to, and controlling a set of scenes. In this model, eliciting positive effects of interest and enjoyment is the gateway to an authentic sense of self, whereas the negative effects of fear, shame, and disgust are inhibitors. This raises the issue of what underlies aspects of self-esteem and the need for recognition. The importance of attachment in the development of the child's sense of self and need for recognition has frequently been discussed. Renee Spitz showed years ago the damage that lack of emotional attention and attachment could cause. Effect theory aids in understanding various aspects of attachment and self-development. Effect theory currently reframes the ideas of Bowlby, Fonagy, and other attachment theorists regarding a specific attachment drive. Rather, effects are seen to underlie aspects of attachment, and attachment is mediated by effects. As Demos stated, Attachment theory as represented in the works of Bowlby, Ainsworth, et al., et al., et al., and everybody, (laughs) Srufen Waters argues that there is a pre-organized behavior, emotional perceptual system specialized for attachment which has been inherited from our primate ancestors and is designed to decrease the physical distance between the infant and the caregiver in time of danger. By contrast, the view presented here that is, Tomkins and colleagues, speaks of highly organized and coordinated systems that the infant has inherited from evolutionary processes, but conceptualizes these systems at a more basic and general level. For example, the perceptual, cognitive, affective, motor, and homeostatic systems, which are designed to function equally well in the inanimate world and in safe as well as dangerous moments. (coughs) Interest and Enjoyment This would suggest that the effect of interest plays a crucial role in the formation of the self. This seems to involve two aspects. Interest in the infant for him or herself. Interest in the child's interest, that is, what the child seems innately interested in. Caregivers may or may not be interested in the child per se and may or may not be interested in what the child responds to. Enjoyment, as a decrease in tension, is also related to a sense of being of interest, being recognized. This brings us back to caregivers having fun with the child, playing with the child. In terms of effect theory, the positive effects of interest and enjoyment may be a useful way to conceptualize issues of development of a sense of self, self self-esteem, and need for recognition, both early in life and throughout the later years.
Hmm. How about those with an impaired sense of self? How does that come about? From infant research and clinical work with children and adults, we learn that the lack of interest from the caregivers, as well as the negative effects of distress, anger, fear, shame, and disgust can significantly impair development and one's sense of self. In addition, enhancing the infant's own effective interest, curiosity, is crucial to his or her self-development with respect to augmented curiosity, exploration, learning about oneself, self-reflection, cognition, and so on. The negative effects of fear, shame, etc. can profoundly inhibit the interest of the child. Do these dynamics lead to a greater need for recognition and adoration from the outside world? From an evolutionary perspective, if mother is not interested in the baby and vice versa, would the species have a viable future? Summary One way to consider these issues involves extrinsic and intrinsic perspectives and the relationships between the two. So it seems that the higher the integration between your extrinsic and intrinsic perspectives, the, the better adjusted you will be, which is, I mean, duh, right? Of course. Infants appear to need some level of interaction, recognition, and interest. Psychological oxygen. Oh my God. I think that's my new favorite term. They're psychological oxygen. Oh my God. That's excellent. Validation. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> Encouragement of their efforts and so on. There is also an intrinsic perspective, the sense of interest, joy, and competence in being able to accomplish something. And, oops, sorry. Thus, one needs to consider both intrinsic and extrinsic sources and their interactions when grappling with the development of self-esteem and need for recognition. Oh, that was a really great article. I'm going to need to read that again. There was so much I didn't absorb. Oh, Wow. It's really interesting to read about just developmental psychology because up until maybe like the last five, seven years, I had no idea and did not recognize how incredibly important it is to have some semblance of understanding about your history growing up, your development and everything like that. So um, the Monday morning podcast, or it was a Thursday morning after Monday morning, whatever, one of the two. It's an episode from December 9th. If you have some time, my friends, I highly recommend you listen to it. Because one thing that Bill Burr talks about is how it's really important to talk through your issues. Because some girl emailed him. He reads mail from, from fans and stuff. And she was asking him about his anger because he has anger issues. She had anger issues and she just wanted to kind of get some kind of response from him about it. And... You know, he very thoroughly kind of explained what it was about him that made him the way that he was. And it's just such a great take, you know, because he talks about how over the years, cumulatively, like the his psychology was impacting his physicality and he could see his mental disposition and his posture. He was always in a defensive posture, you know, his, his shoulders were down, his posture was bad. Your posture says a lot about you psychologically. It's such a little tiny thing. There's a reason a, an erect spine, shoulders back, chest out, open to the world, right? You're open to the world. You are facing the world. That is what that posture projects. 
That's why you got to have good posture. But if you don't, that's just life fucking crushing you into a diamond, you know, crushing you into coal, I should say. <laughs> the atmosphere is just oh, causing you to coil up and shit. You got to be careful, yo. Can't let that shit happen. You really got to keep working it. Keep your back straight and just keep on facing the world. Integrate your extrinsic and intrinsic perspectives and just find some sort of balance in between those two things and you'll get a better idea of yourself and feel good instead of always being confused. Sometimes reconciliation means understanding that you're not going to be able to reconcile certain aspects of your personality or your person or whatever. And this is the paradox of life. You know what I mean? In order to, to integrate, sometimes you need to understand you cannot integrate and accept that and integrate that acceptance into your psyche so that you can reconcile what's irreconcilable. All right. And with that, uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks for hanging out. Appreciate your time. Thanks for stopping by. You're awesome. Good morning club was in full force today. I was feeling good, you know, feeling good, wanted to come hang out, wanted to share some good vibes as per usual. Because that's what we a motherfucking do, okay? I love that shit. People bring me good energy. I'm like, holy shit, I feel so happy and so good and just elated. That is what I want to put out into the fucking world, okay? That's it. That's what we do. That is the game plan. Anyways, have a great day before I start getting all motivational douchey speaker and stuff. And uh, I hope you have a good one. Uh, the week is almost over. Uh, it's almost Christmas. Uh, I don't fucking know what to do. Uh, just get it together. Go buy your presents. Get it over with. Don't be stressing out last minute. You don't want to be heading to the mall between the fucking 20th and the 25th scrambling to find some shit, all right? Don't do it. I promise it's a lot better when you get shit done. Okay? Big kiss. Mm -hmm. Thanks for your ear, bitches. Bye.